0: Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here with us today. Season two is afoot and we are starting another journey into human nature. This time we're looking at the role passages play in the lives of my guests, the initiations, the transformations, the accidental, the intentful. Hold tight and listen in because we are about to journey into another incredible and beautiful series of conversations. Let's get into it. Here we go. Here we go. Michael Mead, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am really grateful to have you here. Thank you for showing up in your willingness.
1: Good to see you again, Jeffrey. Good to be here.
0: Season two has been dedicated toward this idea of passages and As I work through my particular passion, which is the subject of stress, I I think about your work, but you had a recent podcast that came out, I think last month, number 242, Beyond the Hero's Myth, which I found very provocative. And so I reached out to you because I really wanted to explore partly the role of myth, but also this idea of ordeals and the importance of ordeals in our lives and what they do for us. And how stories and how myths actually have assistance or guidance for us as we you know, live a life with the series of ordeals that we're all given.
1: Sounds good. I mean, that's one of the major roles of stories, and it starts with fairy tales for children. Um, the idea of reading fairy tales to children is to put the child in a territory where some trouble occurs, Right. I mean the you know, the only interesting stories are where people get in trouble if you say there was a beautiful little girl and she did, every, did everything right and everybody loved her that's not a story you know maybe it's part of a birthday thing but it's not a story as soon as that little girl gets lost in the forest and something you know is threatening well now we're in a story and kids know that at an early age and that's an early function of stories for kids in in the realm of myth and fairy tales, is to get their little psyches into a story where there's a big challenge and and it comes out all right and there was help from an unseen source. That's part of the function of that story, is to give the child the sense that they're not alone, that there are unseen energies and that there's helpers that can come and that life will be difficult but you can make it through.
0: Why are... Ordeal so essential for us in our human development as you see it
1: well in many ways the function of the ordeal is to put each person in conditions in which they initially feel they can't handle it it seems overwhelming and then they have to let go and in that letting go something else gets activated and so, in mythological terms, the ordeal or the obstacle is not accidental, and it's not there intended intending to limit or harm. It's there to push us to a realization of deeper resources and a greater a greater life that's trying to come through us. Um, and in psychological terms, the ordeal defeats the ego or the little self in order to open connections to the deeper self or the deeper soul so the and then it, it is in rites of passage the middle of the rite of passage is the area of ordeals and loss and so that's how the world works um, in irish myth, it's really clear because they have these they have the hag of bera that's one of her names the old powerful feminine goddess who is the one who tells everybody, all these troubles you have have not been intended to harm you. They've been intended to wake you up to other possibilities in your life. And then when it
0: comes to the need for ordeals and rites of passage, I've heard you speak at length on your podcast, The Living Myth Podcast, which is fantastic, at public events, now online, in person, about the ordeal of our time. And so there's a way in which we're in a collective ordeal. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And again, I put that ordeal in the middle of a collective rite of passage. And it's very unusual to be alive at a time when nature is rattling and culture is unraveling. It's really unusual to have that happen. That's the ordeal. And we know it's the ordeal because climate crisis affects every place in the world, and therefore all the people that are alive— COVID crisis affects all the people as well in some fashion because it's a pandemic that we know is affecting everybody things like that have happened before but people only knew about what was happening locally because of technology and so on everybody knows it's happening to everyone everywhere and then social injustice and all the things related to that economic injustice, disparity, all those things are happening all around the world too. And so we are in this collective ordeal. Another way we know it is collective anxiety and collective fear. In other words, anxiety is a normal thing. If you have a test in the next day or a big meeting the next day, anxiety is completely normal. But people are anxious now and don't even know why. So there's a collective level of anxiety collective fear, and what's called the return of the repressed, which is deep, dark energies like anger and hatred and and all kinds of things that are normally repressed have now come back as part of the ordeal of being alive now. So you have... The Not encouraging. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's why I have to <laughs> proceed it by saying... The function of the ordeal is to awaken the deeper sense of self.
0: That's right. That's right. And I I agree with that because I've come to see that a lot of the narratives that we're exposed to around things to maybe be anxious about or things that really do provoke genuine anxiety and fear, but there's not an equal measure of empowering a sense of capacity and how important, and that gap is so painful. And I think that one of the things that, in my studies, which have, because I'm more in the health field um, than straight up story and myth, but I have seen that the deeper I look into the human body, the, the deeper the resources and the wisdom and the power that is there. And so I'm really interested in narratives, whether they're, they're genuine health narratives or myths, which help us recognize and awaken to wow, we're not born in this time as victims, but we're born this time maybe because, maybe because deep down there's still something here within each of us. And so this brings me back to that conversation that you or that that essay you had in your podcast around the different kinds of myths and ideas which can help us with our condition and our ordeal. And I want maybe to ask you just to re-break that down here and then build on that.
1: So the myth simply means story. It actually means also telling the stories. So it has an, an active side to it. And one of the tricks is to figure out, well, what story are we in? And so one way to understand that is we are in the story of apocalypse. That's the Latin word. The Greek word was apocalypsis, which didn't mean the fiery end of everything. That's something that got written into the Bible. And so people get their notion from there. But apocalypsis means a couple of things. It means collapse, renewal, collapse, renewal. Things collapse, but things also renew. And often the two things are happening at the same time. And it also means lifting the veil. And so the veil gets lifted and you see behind the scenes. Like in politics now, the the back room is the front room. You get to see what used to be hidden in the back room. They do it out in front of everybody. You see the veil lifting on the dysfunction of of health institutions and health systems in the modern world. So that's all called lifting the veil. Um, So that's the big picture. Then the question becomes, where are the resources that we need to handle that? I think that's a huge question. And one thing I'm focused on lately is if if the big picture is the collapse, renewal, the rattling of the world, the tremendous uncertainty, then what would be happening in the depth of the human psyche, um, which you could call the deep soul or the deep unifying self or many other names. Um, So that's the place of resources. So when the big trouble is on, when the big ordeal is underway, there's a a kind of uh, responsive energy in the depth of the soul Um, which you can imagine as the reconnection to the unifying self would, in other words, the outside world is polarized. Well, in story terms, that means unity is nearby. Unity is is the answer, the medicine for the bigger problem. But the other thing that I've become interested in is how, well, two things, because you were talking about the, the health field. Everybody has their own medicine. That's something that You know people used to be told through stories that everybody's carrying medicine and often the medicine we most need is somewhere in our own self as a resource Uh, but also what some people call archetypal energies like in the health uh, realm the archetype that most characterizes it is wounded healer so in the midst of the period when all the wounds are being opened, I mean the wounds of racism and misogyny and on and on and on, all the wounds, uh, what's activated in the psyche is the healer. Um, When things are falling apart, what's activated in the psyche is the energy for creating, the creator energy. And so in mythological terms, but also in psychological terms, there is an endless resource that can be tapped that is closer in the midst of the ordeal than at other times hidden
0: opportunities are revealed
1: yes so so what happens is it's the ego the little self that many people think is the only self it can't handle it there's like the voice inside i have a voice when it's getting heavy and i don't know what's going on i have a little voice that'll say i can't handle this i can't handle this well that's the ego The ego cannot handle it, that's what's going on. The little sense of self, the the me and my world, our worlds are all shaken, we can't handle it. But there's the deeper self that's been trying to wake up all along. The deeper self is the place of the medicine, the place of hidden knowledge, the access to universal uh, humanity, the access to the ancient knowledge that gets lost in the daily world, but has to exist somewhere, it's often down in the soul. Um, And so, taken as a big story, the biggest ordeal anybody could imagine, Um, I've never seen any bigger ordeals than what we have now, but generating a potential big response from deep in the soul of humanity as well as in the depths of the individual soul. um, And that's the middle of the ordeal, the ordeal begins, or the rite of passage begins with separation and loss. So the world that we used to know is gone. It, I know some people think they can get it back, but they can't. And we haven't reached the world that would be a more unified world with greater health and understanding. We haven't reached it yet. We're in the middle. But in the middle is both the ordeal and the resources become more immediate.
0: I have some questions about the ego, and I have some questions I have for you about time, but I want to stick with this response and this what I understand you to call the mythic imagination and the inner genius inside everyone. And the problem we have as you articulate it with falling towards heroic solutions and the challenge of the hero myth in such a time of that we're in. By the way, You've been the person I've known in my life and in my sphere who has been calling this out for at least three decades. Hard times are coming. Hard times are coming. That was always coming from you. And it's just over the decades been increasingly clear. So now that we're even more deeper in this ordeal, in this morass, talk about the function of myth and story and the the risk of this monomyth as you call it, of the heroic, and the antidote to that, perhaps, in the genius?
1: So, I mean, it's interesting to me, because um, besides meaning realm of imagination, deep emotions, and passionate things, which myth refers to, um, myth is multiple. Uh, It's possible, I don't know how many creation myths there are, But there's thousands. And some cultures will have dozens. As if creation has to happen so many different ways, there is no one story. So one of the kind of uh, hmm, traps in the modern world is the mono-myth. And so you have mono-religions and mono-belief systems. And in my lifetime, the only myth that has any purchase in modern Western culture has been the hero's myth. And unfortunately, Joseph Campbell, when he wrote Heroes with a Thousand Faces, which is kind of the introductory book on the subject, he called it the monomyth. It is not the monomyth. There can't be a monomyth. Myth Myth is multiple by its very nature. And so there's been a, a kind of consolidation inside a single myth, which may be better than no myth at all. But the problem with the hero's myth is it tends to be muscular, dominant, masculine, outward aimed, um, and aimed at accomplishment. At least that's how it's often understood. And it comes with a whole bunch of armor and defenses which are part of the problem now, not part of the solution, not part of the medicine. And so I've been offering as one alternative the genius myth. And the notion there is everyone born is born with some genius qualities. Not that everybody's a genius, but everybody has access to genius. Genius is a Latin word that means the spirit that's already there. And so I'm saying every soul born, girl, boy, boy, in between, new idea of gender, whatever you have, Each person comes in with inherent gifts, capacities, and resources that have a genius quality, Uh, which means a person doesn't have to go out and achieve something in order to be living a meaningful life or to be a genuine version of themselves. It also means that everybody has access to something that could be medicine, that could be a gift, that could be a capacity that's needed by others. And then, then that fits together for me, with saying that what we need now is the awakening of the genius in many, many people because the problems we have are so multiple. Whether it's nature or culture, it's one problem after another, layers and levels of problems that need attention. No singular uh, belief system is going to do it and no amount of heroism is going to do it. It's going to be awakening of something that's different, that's closer to nature where nature used to be imagined that each tree had its own genie, each, each stream had its own spirits, very similar to each human being have a spirit that has meaning, that has purpose, and that can bring medicine just the way every plant in nature can become a form of net medicine.
0: That's beautiful. We've known each other for a few decades now, and I have seen in the course of my own life the, the push and pull inside me, And the, at times, confusion uh, and understanding of what my life's about and what are my gifts and what am I trying to do here and why does this hurt or why did it work then or however it moves forward. And furthermore, in my life, I've also had, I would say, accidental initiations, like things that just happened in my life that weren't planned. And I've also done intentional rites of passages, wilderness fasting three times at least and they've all had different kinds of characters and qualities to them that have been important for me and in my development. And I, one of the reasons I wanted to engage this conversation is that the heroic narrative has kind of found a home in the rites of passage, wilderness fasting narrative story. You go out, you know you you go through the ordeal you come back and you have some new sense of your qualities and and actually it's true and it actually does work it's actually pretty damn powerful to sit with the spirits and be without food and in that condition um but when i think about it at the same time i also realize that that it the heroic kind of denies the the genius thing that you're talking about that's more emergent in that process and so and I'm ticking through my mind, stories where people are taking rites of passage and heroic ideas and causing harm. And how important it is that when good intentions, you know, obviously pave the road to hell, when certain things go really wrong, when people get fixated on a solution. And I think this maybe gets into the ego development and the kind of heroic ideas that we've been in and the heroic side of the, the ego or the substitute there. And I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on the terrain underneath the hero myth. It really is uncomfortable and uncomfortable for the ego and it, but is also really important for our human development and understanding ourselves.
1: So it, you can see it. It's, it's a kind of a relatively short traumatic story as the, particularly as the hero becomes a figure in popular culture. And then it pops up in movies, um, all the heroic stories. But then as technology changes in time and things are moving faster because we're at the end of an era, you see it show up in uh, games, in video games. Um, And then you see the violent side of it come out, the shadow of the hero, which is often dominance and violence and lack of empathy. Um, And so there's an easy way in which the hero as it is typically understood, kind of gets married to the ego. And so my understanding of rites of passage um, and genuine ordeal is that the ego will get diminished, if not somewhat shattered. And so I know that when Eastern ideas and Eastern stories and philosophies came into the West, some people say they're going to meditate away their ego, and I'm not with that group. I think that's a somewhat of a mistranslation of what I'll sometimes say to a group is, say, um, if you meditate your ego out of existence, who has the key to the ashram? In other words, the ego is there to deal with daily functions and how to move around in the world. And the idea is the ordeals in a person's life, and nowadays I think in collective life, is to loosen the ego to have the ego be a more fluid structure that has connection to and access to the deep self, which has the inner gifts and the medicines and the inventive creative qualities. So so the tricky thing for modern people, and I, I, I love the idea that people are working on rites of passage. And the one kind of rites of passage that I've seen in America that I would recommend for people is wilderness because what's happening is nature takes a role so then it doesn't you don't need heroic people as much right so the vision quest becomes the quest for the individual to be able to sit still enough and in a vulnerable enough condition to have the the world of nature and the unseen world of spirits whatever terms a person want to use come to them and give them direct information that is not filtered through a belief system but coming in the form of nature spirits or animal spirits or whatever a person happens to experience i think that's great i think that's clean i think that's that's legitimate the problem i think comes when the return to culture the return to the community the return to where the ideas are preformed and so So the problem usually is you have this profound experience, really important, an essential part of life. Are there people waiting who have an understanding of profound experience who can be helpful with that and help make a bridge back to daily life as opposed to are you just going back to a version of daily life which is going to package that or worse? turn it into another ego experience.
0: Is the fixation on the hero myth a symptom of a mass culture?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the Western world especially. The Nike symbol, just do it. The, the story that's told to kids and young people, you can be anything you want to be. That's heroic blindness. We're lucky if we turn out to be partially like who we're supposed to be. And when I was growing up, they say anyone could be president. What I would say now is, how'd that work out? No. You know, the, the, the ancient idea is the soul is unique from the beginning. It's gifted, but it's also aimed. And, and, and so then the idea of the vision quest is nature knows that. Nature can see, uh, in West Africa they say, nature is spirit with a green garment on nature, spirit, they're kind of the same thing. Nature sees the eagle that flies in in the middle of the vision quest, sees something in the person who's vulnerably sitting there. The message is delivered, not from a heroic creation, but from natural presence. And so then that's the challenge then to whoever's holding the events, how can they, how can we match up to what's actually happening at the level of the individual soul?
0: I think that's so well said, and um, I fully agree. And I love that the uh, vision quest is a form that exists on its own. You know, It's, it's just the shape and the tradition, and I, I really appreciate about that. And funny enough, one of the things right after I first met you in San Francisco in 1997— in I, I went on my first vision quest, and an eagle, an eagle, and dreams, and all sorts of things unfolded from that, including you know my my choice to become an acupuncturist. And later that summer, I uh, went to Mendocino for one of your events uh, there in the redwoods. And I want to go to that moment in time a little bit because it's about more personal passages, um, a little bit for me, but I'm also interested in talking about my experience with you in order to talk about your life a little bit more. And so in 97, when I saw you at this conference, it was a room of 1,500, maybe 2,500 people in San Francisco at the auditorium. And I remember the feeling when you spoke of feeling seen in a way that no one had else had seen me or understood me in my life. And I think there was like my ex- high school experience and and the the challenges that I had gone through as a young man coming of age. And I felt you and you were able to speak to that and you're able to cut across that. And so even though I was in a room with a few thousand people, I had the sense that, oh, I'm known now. And then you know I went to your small workshop and you did this amazing ritual and there was young people and singing and, and drumming and, and fabrics and candles and stones. And it was, it was, it was, there was so much vitality around that. So from the time I first came across you in person, I was immediately felt a gravity towards this wisdom and understanding that I've, I've known you to have. And so I, I really appreciate that and the tremendous influence it's had in my life which could be a whole show on its own. Um, But I want to come back to this capacity in you. And so I did did find the old tape of that talk. And I want to play, I think I'll play the shorter part.
2: When the youth of a culture cannot see places of respect prepared for them so that they have the encouragement to live through the difficulties of their lives, how can anyone blame them for trying to set things on fire right now? And it seems to me that one of the uh, educations of uh, elders is to notice where the weight and the gravity of a culture is and to uh, submit to picking up, carrying, suffering and bearing the weight of the culture so that the young people can learn to stretch their legs and stretch their muscles and explore the world. And when the elders don't do it, what I see happening is the weight of the culture, the weight of tragedy, falls through the generations until it hits a generation now with such stunning weight that they begin to commit suicide in great numbers and even kind of an accommodation to each other, kill each other, as if to end the pain of the tragedy sooner.
1: That's what I said, huh? Yes, you did. Huh. Wow, that's interesting. It sounds like something out of the 30s, you know, the, 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 the actual sound of it, but... But I do remember the occasion, and I had a responsibility at that event. So um, it was uh, the Dalai Lama's tour. Uh, we used to joke that the only one that tours more than the Dalai Lama is the Grateful Dead. <laughs> but this was a nonviolence tour, and, and it was a brilliant idea. And, and, and there was brilliance in the way the Dalai Lama approached it. He was doing it all around the world. And each place that he was going to, to uh, put on the conference, he would want to know who are the most violent people in that area. And that's how I got involved. So he was coming to the West Coast of the United States. And the question was, who are the most violent people in 1997, West Coast of America? And uh, so I get a call from Jack Cornfield, old friend who you know, who knows the Dalai Lama, saying the Dalai Lama wants to know who's the most violent group on the West Coast. And I said, it's youth gangs right now. That's where the really heavy weight is and the the gang violence is. And so then the the response comes back, can you bring some youth, gang youth, to the nonviolent conference? Which I thought was profound. So we actually brought, whatever, 35 roughly young people, not active gang members, but many of whom had been gang members or had been living on the streets. And uh, we did a preparatory event beforehand, because otherwise it would not have worked. So then they had other youth groups coming from around the country. So there might have been a total of 200 young people sitting in the audience who, on their own, could not pay to be there and would never hear about it. Um, A diverse group of young people, mostly from lower classes, so-called, from the hood, from the barrio. Um, and so I came in with them, and and they're sitting in this auditorium with whatever that is, 2,000 people, who are paying, I don't know, $100 a day or something, and who are there to learn how to be peaceful in, in, in through meditation and so on was part of the idea. But I'm talking to these kids that we brought who at night are saying to us, how can these people be thinking of peace when they don't understand violence how can they imagine healing when they haven't felt the wound so and that night i'm having to explain to them how this could be you know what's going on so when i got a my opportunity to talk which All very fascinating. Seven people sitting on the stage. Each person's going to talk for 10 minutes or whatever it is. You're you're told to only direct everything you say to the Dalai Lama. Don't look at the audience. Uh, It was amazing stuff, which I couldn't do. Because I'm sitting there, and what I'm thinking is of all those young people sitting there who are invited to an event that they're not really invited to be part of and who are in complete confusion about how could these be the people looking to make peace and they don't know about the turbulence in our lives. And I realized I had to speak for the young people and to the young people. That's what I was doing. And, and I, I remember I started by apologizing to the Dalai Lama. I said, excuse me, I don't intend any disrespect, I just need to talk to who's sitting here. Um, and afterwards I had to discuss that with the powers that be of why didn't I follow the rules. Uh, But to me, the rule was what I said. If we're going to be elders or olders or or people who are going to claim to know something, we better understand something about the tragedy and the weight of culture and what happens when the older people won't risk their lives fully, then the risk and the tragedy falls on young people. And since we came there with young people and they were sitting there, I felt I had to speak to some degree for them and certainly to them. And yeah, it resonated with the audience. Um, There's a thing I'll never forget because also in the back room, there's always a back room, and in the back room things are going on and I'm saying, hey, look it, you know, I know I get to sit up with the esteemed people and the Dalai Lama and I'll get to speak. Why aren't the young people allowed to speak? Can't we have some young people? So finally, after a lot of haggling, they say two young people can speak. And I know one of them, because we happen to have a, a young guy that we met who was homeless, who is a brilliant person, a brilliant speaker. He's going to be on stage. And I'll never forget the one thing he said. He, his turn to speak comes after someone working on the SALT treaty um, to limit nuclear weapons who already has won the Nobel Prize. And he's next. And he said, you know, I don't know a lot about all that stuff. But one thing I will say is the trigger for every weapon is in the human heart. You know, 18 years of age, he said that. Yeah. And, and everybody cheered like crazy, like that cuts right to it. And the reason he knew that was because he grew up on the streets. Yeah. And so that was a whole thing. Wow, that's amazing to hear that again. And, and to remember that's where we met.
0: Yeah, that hard-earned wisdom that cuts through, and I feel like that moment, I remember the young man you were talking about and how powerful, powerfully he spoke and some of the dynamics there at the conference. Um, so thanks for giving the background on that. And I completely agree. And it, it's just a throwback to the feeling of, you know, education, prison, the motion of society and, and, and the arguments that were alive at that time. And then, so I want to use that as a gateway a little bit more into the a, a larger conversation about some of your own passages, because it's been almost 25 years uh, since that event. And when I think about your life, and I, I one of the questions I have for you is, you know, as a storyteller, as someone who's found their way into the level of myth, cultural understanding, social conflict issues and speaking to them, did you, what would your... 13 year old self what would your 16 year old self think about or <laughs> where you've ended up and where you've come you know following say your own genius threads
1: no thank you for that well it's interesting because there is a through line a gradient line you could call it um so you mentioned my 13 year old self i had two big experience experiences when i was 13 One is I got for my birthday, mistakenly, a book on mythology that my aunt got by mistake, which I had a fight to keep because she said it's the wrong book. But it was absolutely the right book. It was like a gift that wasn't a gift. It was like a mistake that wasn't a mistake. So I had that. I found a language. I didn't have to grow up. I was in that language. I was in those stories. I I was the smallest kid in the class. We were a poor family. None of that mattered. I could read and feel and enter the biggest myths in the world that night. I read almost the whole book. Within six months of that I get cornered in the back of a movie theater by um, uh, members of an older rival gang to our neighborhood. I'm in a little local crew and they're the nearby neighbor gang. and They couldn't find who they were after so they grabbed me and they were known for cutting people up with knives there's seven of them they got their knives out I'm cornered my little ego self thinks this is it I get 13 years it's all over and so the way I understand it now my ego departs and suddenly I start telling a story it comes just out of me no rehearsal no preparation no permission and they forget to hurt me and they let me go and I'm walking in the streets now going I just found something stronger than weapons and it was in me, and I didn't even know it was in me. Was it that clear, so sorry
0: that, to interrupt Michael, but was it that clear to you at 13 that you had actually found a weapon that was stronger than weapons?
1: Yeah, I knew that. But I had no idea what to do with it. And to tie it back to rites of passage ordeals, uh, there was no one nearby to say, hey, here's what happened. Or, cause I told people, I said, you know, I, th- I just told the story and they dropped their weapons. And my friend said, let's go get him anyway. And I said, well, wait, well, you're missing your point. You know, I said, there's a bigger point. No, no, there isn't, you know? And so, uh, so I tried to talk to, I wouldn't talk to my parents, but I tried to talk to uh, teachers and all and say, there's a thing, no, there isn't. It doesn't, it's not part of your school lessons. So I was carrying around this kind of piece of knowledge uh, without having it confirmed. And I think that's what happens to young people. And that's even the danger with the with, uh, vision quest How does proper confirmation occurs? It took me 20 years to get that fully confirmed. Um, But here's what's interesting about those experiences. You can keep going back and unpack it. The story I told those guys who were like 16 and 17 and seemed so much older to me and were known to do harm, they were actual gang members. Well, look at how many years later is it I'm standing up and talking for and to and about gang members the thread goes right through. So later on in life, when I had fortunate circumstances and I had an opportunity to live a different way, and my instinct was to give back, I I wanted to give back. I don't know why, no one told me to do that, I wanted to do it, Uh, and I thought, where could I be helpful? And I thought I could help with young people in trouble, because I know that ground, I know something about it, I can relate and I can empathize, so I started doing gang work and youth work and prison work. But the thread was there all the way back at 13, or the two threads, the thread of myth and the thread of wanting to help break the cycle of the damage that was happening to youth because those guys that cornered me, they had the same problem I had. And that's what I told them. I said, you know, the reason you're so violent, everybody wants to be so violent is we're all being treated violently in our families. We're all being beaten up as kids, that's how that was. That violence doesn't come from nowhere. It's a trauma trying to release itself. And so I was already trying to instinctively do it at 13 years of age. And later I understood a little bit more consciously that this is a a road I have to walk. Uh, Yes, That it does healing for me but it also gives me a capacity to relate to people. And then it kept expanding. It went from youth and gangs to prisons, to refugees, to anybody having trauma. And, now, and then we arrive at the contemporary moment when everybody has trauma. Trauma's everywhere. And so I legitimately wind up, <laughs> because of this gradient line, in a sense,
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. It's really a beautiful weave of life and 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 not something one could plan or create and it speaks to the depth that you were talking about earlier in the show. On this idea of confirmation and, you know, moving into a world where you've had a public life, you've you've written five or six books, you've you've edited a couple others. You speak constantly to groups, teach um, you know, do activist work like you just spoke about. How did that confirmation happen? Who were the people in your life who recognized your genius and helped move it forward? And I'm sure there's a handful of people. You don't have to name them all, but I'm just curious of a couple important ones to you.
1: Well, first, I would think of two categories. And one is, um, I call them mentoring moments when someone, maybe I never see them again, at the right moment, they confirm something in me. Um, And so that started back in the neighborhood. Also when I was 13, or maybe 14 by then, a little bit later, um, there's a big gang fight gonna happen between all the young people in my neighborhood and the next neighborhood. And I'm going, I'm I'm one of the kids, this is what we do. And one of the older guys that I barely knew pulled me aside, literally. And said, you know, this is not for you. I think you're supposed to do other things. And I, and I got really resistant, like, wait a minute, are you are trying to say I can't, you know, I'm not, me? and he said, I'm just saying this is not for you. Brilliant. It started me thinking, well, if that's not for me, what's for me? So that's a mentoring moment. I don't even know that guy's name. And, he, and we didn't have like a good relationship after that. He just acted like a mentor. he probably forgot about it. But I took it in. So there's that kind of thing. That has happened to me a lot. And then when it gets to specific people, um the the first thing that is strongly confirmative at a at a meaningful time was when I got in contact with Robert Bly. And and that was interesting. So he's like seventeen or eighteen years older than I am. So he would be in the next generation in, in old terms. Um he's a poet. Uh well-known poet at the time, National Book Awards, and that kind of thing. And I wrote him because I read something that he had said, and I just wanted to say, I love the interview you did, but there's one thing you had wrong. Because he had said something about Iver Schmidt that was incorrect. And I said, you know, no disrespect. Notice I do this with the Dalai Lama, anyway. So, and I said, but, but if you understand the sequence of the stories, the answer from a riddle in one tale is in another story. And so it's not as mysterious as you're saying. Uh, well, the, and so then the, his response is to say, can you come to a conference and present on Irish myth? And there it is, boom, I'm invited. And for the first time, I'm at a conference uh, with people, psychologists, artists, and people who know more than I do and, and actually have been doing stuff like together with other people. Uh, and, that, and so then that led to a big mentoring thing Uh, with Robert who right away said oh you know you've got you've got stuff you need to be heard you need you know and that kind of thing Um, and then the other person I have to mention which came a few years later is James Hillman the uh, psychologist philosopher um, who I invited to come to an event because the the mentoring relationship with Robert Bly fell into the category called battle so (laughs) Like a mentor can be like a friend, yeah. like a companion, or a mentor can be like a teacher, or a mentor can be like an adversary. And Robert's style with me was adversarial. Um, and, and that works with me, you know, that works with me. Because, you know, if someone knocks me and I feel it's, it's incorrect, I'll find the place that's right. I won't, I won't be diminished, I'll be awakened. Uh, but there was something missing in the work, I thought. And I had found some things that James Hillman was doing. So I invited him. So that's interesting because I invited him to come into work we were doing, but then he became a mentor uh, for me. And I'll say something specific about that because it became specific very quickly. First time I actually met, met him, um, it was after he had given a talk that blew everybody into opposition. <laughs> and it was, it was a big blow-up. Uh, I think the talk was called uh, Jesus Christ and the Atomic Bomb Twin Brothers. You <laughs> know, <laughs> he would do things like that. He was trying to talk about the shadow of Christianity. But anyway, he's standing out looking at this lake after this explosion. And and I go up and say, excuse me, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt your reverie. I just wanted to uh, say hello and, and, and say thank you for all the writings and everything. He said, well, who are you? And I said, well, you know, I'm just someone that appreciates your work. And he said, well, what'd you think of that? And I said, I thought it went okay." He said, really? Everybody's arguing with each other. I said, well, look at your theme. (laughs) I said, didn't you intend atomic explosion? (laughs) And he goes, oh, I get it, Okay." He said, well, what are you thinking about? And that was the mentoring moment. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not going to make something up. That would be really uh, wasteful and dishonorable in some way. So I said, well, I'm thinking a lot about fate and destiny um, and how they're different. And he said, how are they different? And I said, well, fate is what restricts us. Everything from DNA to family uh, status. And destiny is what calls us to fulfill a a fulfilled life and a life of meaning and purpose. And he said, that's a damn good description. Um, You should write about that. That's what he said. Wow. He gave me permission to write. And that became the book called Fate and Destiny. And so that was what I call a blessing. Uh Robert Bly was very, very helpful in awakening a certain spirit in me. Uh, And in opening, he he would open the doors to all kinds of wild experiences. So the doors of not just poetry, but the whole poetic imagination, um, and 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 that was extremely good but hillman blessed my mind mm-hmm. he said that's go- that's a good description that's a meaningful thing you should write so it's as if we're going around looking for blessings from people who we know are further down the road than we are and for each person it's different i needed a blessing for the oral tradition for spontaneous speaking, for telling stories. And I got a lot of that from Robert Bly. And I needed a blessing for uh, the mental work and for writing. And I wound up both telling stories and writing books. And so those are two, two really major figures for me. Those
0: are great stories. I love hearing those. I Sometimes I've heard you speak the name Terry Dobson with a particular kind of reverie.
1: Well, Terry was one of the teachers, so we would be like companions because we were both teaching in these various crazy conferences and all. And, and we got along right away. Terry uh, was teaching uh, Aikido. And Terry was a very big man. You know this. He was a big, heavy guy. I never before. met Terry. Oh, he's a big, heavy guy. And so when they say, oh, there's going to be a keto teacher and everybody gets interested and they all show up and in walks this big, heavy guy. looks like he just left the bar somewhere. (laughs) Uh, And and no one thinks that's the teacher. And then he starts to talk and that's the teacher. And the profound thing, many profound things, but one thing would be he would do one of these things where he'd say, okay, group of people get around. Everybody attack me at the same time. And you go, dude, you sure you can move? And all of a sudden, boom, he just be turning people upside down so fast no one could understand what happened. So he was really an unusual person. But I'll get to the heart of the matter because over time what happened is Terry had a very serious heart illness and there was no way to treat it except for an operation in which they take the heart out of the body. And I don't know what they do, but it's out of the body for minutes. And then they put it back in. And... um, He called me after that operation and said, I don't know where I was, but I wasn't in my body, nor was my heart in my body. He said, I know, and I know I now have a stage of life that I maybe wasn't going to have, and I have to live it differently. And what he did for the rest of his life, as I saw it, was speak from the heart all the time. Mm -hmm and and so i have profound respect for him um he was a natural teacher and and the obvious word is he was courageous especially towards the end of his life he spoke courageously from the heart a a really powerful guy a master of martial arts and he would talk about what a coward he was or how fearful he was and he would do it with just straight up honesty So yeah, I've always revered him.
0: I just keep thinking as you talk about him and your experiences with James Hillman and Robert Bly, how we all need moments and people in so many ways to to make our way through the passage of life. And um, so I'm really appreciating you sharing some of your own allies, guides, mentors, friends who've um, helped you find your way.
1: Can I add one? Hell yeah, brief one. Just so it doesn't look too overly masculine or 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 male. I was at a conference early on too, and, and I had been telling stories, and then and then I really got lost, and and it was it was it was kind of like the period where going near the gifts would open the wound so much that uh, after having a successful so-called presentation. That night, I just felt destroyed, and and um, and in being destroyed, I said something mm, clearly offensive and pretty intentional to an award-winning poet who was there. And then the next, by the next morning, I felt so ashamed, and I was and I was supposed to give another talk, and and I was late on my way there because I I was afraid to go do it, and, and I didn't know how to. Uh, understand or clean up something I had done that was, you know, inappropriate. And I ran into Gioia Tempanelli, who's a well-known storyteller, especially at that time. And uh, she said, I think you're late for your thing. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid to go. And I just blurted it out to her. And she said, oh, don't worry about that. We all make mistakes and what's more important is that your voice is heard. Just like instant medicine, instant clarification. Yeah, you made a mistake, but don't let the little self take over everything. Go tell a story and then see what your next responsibility is. So,
0: and that comes from her genius, right? Obviously, she's in touch with her own genius in some way to be able to say that clearly.
1: And she had worked through something similar. She could recognize it entirely. You know, there wasn't even time for her to say, oh, I've been through that. It was just, no, we're not here for that. You can take care of that later.
0: How you doing right now? You you good? How's your energy?
1: I'm fine. It's interesting. All kinds of memories come flooding back. It's
0: flooding, yeah. Anything else that's, that you want to bring forward that's
1: just showing up, that's like being stirred? Well, I want to go back to the 1997 and one of the things I learned um, There's this thing about being authentic and um, it's a a really wonderful Greek word, authentikos. And the first part of it is where we get author from, author. And it simply means to make, to be making something. And I think we're all supposed to be making something. And then the second part, entikos, has to do with being. So you could interpret it as doing and being. But I think those words aren't precise enough it's more like making and being
0: yeah making there's more creation in it than just doing
1: yeah the doing and being is gets into a a sociological kind of argument about which is better you know and someone says which is better doing or being the answer is yes i mean we're alive so in certain situations we get made we get made more as ourselves and so, after that occasion with the Dalai Lama, which was a brilliant thing in so many ways, and, and I got to meet the Dalai Lama, and we had a nice little conversation, mostly about jokes. He wanted to know if I knew any jokes, and <laughs> we were just joking around. It was great. Uh, but someone said to me afterwards, boy, that seemed really disrespectful that you told the Dalai Lama you were gonna break the rules and talk to the audience. And, and I said, well, I think he might have understood. I said, I I had a responsibility to be authentic to what I knew in the moment. And I knew that those young people were sitting there going, what the hell is this? If these are the people that are going to produce peace, how come they don't know anything about violence? And I just felt like I had to be authentic or actually what I felt is I wouldn't be able to face them afterwards. Uh, And so then a really interesting thing happened, which the person that was, kind of critiquing me, didn't notice. At the end of the event, when there's a closing thing, they asked the Dalai Lama what he wanted, and he said, I want those young people on stage with me. And you probably remember that. I do. The young people that we brought came up on stage with drums and played and sang, and the whole thing ended. The peace conference ended with the gang kids singing ancient songs. And so... It's worth, you know, it's worth struggling to be authentic, uh, because it's a kind of self-verification in a way, and then it leads to other things. And a lot of what's missing in the world now, and especially for young people, is authenticity. The world is so full of manipulation, bifurcation, polarization, and so little authenticity that it it becomes. A medicine for the time we're
0: living in. Yeah, beautifully said. It's great to great to go back there and remember that closure and tie it into the, you know, the discomfort or the risk that was there with your own choice in that moment and your deep sense of obligation. Um, uh for that and for many other reasons. I um, I deeply admire um, your ways and your willingness and. and the inclusivity of of mistakes, uh, wrong moves, um, healing, correction, and and so I, I'm appreciating all that right now as you as you take us back to 97 a little further.
1: And there's a quality there that goes back to what you were talking about with the vision quest. So you you go through the vision experience, and if you have a genuine experience, which can be anything a dream, a vision, an animal presence, you know that's a to the individual psyche, um, that's authentic. And then how does a person hold, learn from, and sustain those authentic moments? That's I think what is so challenging to the people formulating the rite of passage is the vision experience could also be called the authentic presence experience. And that is such a tremendous, meaningful experience to have that it's what needs to be protected and, and um, confirmed. And so it's likely that given a chance and being in nature, something meaningful will happen to almost everyone then the question becomes how is that understood how is it contained and how is it turned into a continuous presence in that person and a kind of medicine and a and a place of refuge for them to go to that's a huge challenge to the people that are that are creating it um, and i think that's the kind of challenge we're in collectively in the middle of all this pandemic you know, climate crisis, and you name it, all the layers. What's lacking is authenticity on a political level, on a communal level, on a cultural level, on an educational level. Look at what's going on with education, how easily things polarize. Well, what's missing is those authentic things that reunify everything or give wholeness for a moment. How do we find those? And if we do find them, how do we then keep them present? because the daily world will swallow it up again. And so maybe there's something there about confirming it in each other. I'm not sure, but it seems to me that that's the companion element to the ordeal. The ordeal is happening. The healing and confirming. How's that going? It's a great point. It's a
0: great point. Yeah, it's uh, for me, a recent uh, episode I did was a deep, inquiry into value and how we value and what we value. So I've been thinking a lot about the the, kind of the, not the passive sense of values, but the active sense of time and energy and use and, and where we place our value. And I really like the call because I think we kind of need that talking about so many hard things like, Oh yeah, I can be more alive in this moment with this person and I can value the opportunity for, a mentoring moment, an exchange of words that might just be that little adjustment of, like you said, before that gang fight, I don't think this is for you. And the thing about that is that that's kind of risky, right? Like there's a kind of, there's, you got to kind of say things that might not work, that might might get misunderstood or be clumsy at times when we, when we don't fully know, but we're just trying to trust ourselves in that way.
1: Well, I was saying at the beginning, I think there's a deep, psychic, soulful response to the outer drama. And 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 I think that can be trusted. So, another story, right? So, um, I get to write a book, you know. Uh, I always respected writers, but I didn't know that I would write a book. And so, I write The Water of Life, the first book I, I wrote. And it gets published, and I'm on a book tour. Actually, like a 30-city book tour. It's crazy. But what happened so I had a rule I don't know where it came from but every time I would give a talk and it was mostly it was in bookstores back at that time and it was in college towns a lot and because that's where they could get me in I guess and so but I had a rule that if I was going to talk to a group of people I was going to mention death and part of it was I felt that uh, American culture Western culture in general as part of heroic obsession was denying death and um, and so I felt like I owed that to whoever might show up for a talk I don't know how I worked that out so I would mention death it was in the book too and so what started to happen especially in college towns you know people stay around to have a book signed or just to ask a question or to make you feel bad or whatever they have all kinds of reasons they hang around and what would happen every time practically would be the one waiting to be the last one to talk, you know, staying in the back of the line, whatever, was a young person, a a college student in the college towns. And inevitably they would say something like, you mentioned death, and I was surprised by that, and what do you think about suicide? So this is the young person who's clearly thinking about life and death, and they see an opportunity, and they're going to treat me as a mentor. That's how I understood mentoring. That's, you know, I became sudden mentor. And so what I would do, and this is like being trapped by the gang because it wasn't, wasn't a plan, I would get into spontaneous conversation. And the first time it happened, I said, well, what do you think about suicide? Have you thought about suicide? Well, yeah, I have. Well, what are you thinking? Well, what do you mean? I'm supposed to tell you. I don't even know you. I said, well, just tell me what you're and Everybody thinks about suicide. Mm-hmm. Have you tried it? No. Do you have a plan? Not really. Well, if you were going to kill yourself, where would it happen? Well, there's this bridge, and all of a sudden, the whole story come out. And I said, listen, here's what I think is going on. Part of you needs to die in order for the rest of you to grow. And you're making a basic mistake. You think it's you that needs to die. And, uh, And so you're on a bridge already. And the idea is you have to let part of you go so the rest of you can cross the bridge. And so the reason you brought this up is so that I could tell you this. Don't kill yourself. Find the part that has to die and leave it behind. And, and this young student you know, said, whoa, is it, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure, but yeah. And I said, so now we have to make a deal. What? You have to agree with me that you're not going to kill yourself. You're going to figure out which end of the bridge to get off on and you know, whatever the rest of it was. That was mentoring. And it was mentoring on the spot. And afterwards I thought about it. And, and what right did I have to do that? And then I thought about, well, what right did I have not to do that? How could I abandon someone like that? They took that risk. And so they turned me into a mentor. And, and the mentoring was about life and death. And so then I thought about, I told some people about it, and they said, well, how do you know what to say? And I said, I didn't know. And then I remembered the origin of Mentor. Mentor enters in the Odyssey when the young prince is on the shore and he meets the old sailor called Mentor. That's how we get the idea of Mentor. And when Mentor speaks to the young person, it's the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom, who speaks through him. And I realized that's what it is. All I have to do is be genuine about what I know and what I don't know, and then whatever comes through might be my way of talking to this young person I just met. And that probably happened nine times in that book tour. And it was like my education in sudden mentoring. And and I realized each time the words were coming from somewhere else. I just had to not be in the way too much. So. So we're all looking for mentoring moments, and then we get turned into mentors. And there's no right way. There's this authenticity. There's authenticity. I mean, one of those young people I thought was really suicidal. And I, I couldn't leave that bookstore until we worked it out because I thought, this, this person will kill themselves. you know. And so then, for me then, that gave me a sense of the gravity of the areas of mentoring. You know, and how, again, it re- requires a certain authenticity, which includes, I don't know, but I'm open to knowledge showing up. <laughs> and then it keeps it out of the ego realm. It's not that me, I'm a great mentor, I know shit. You know, No, I'm willing to hold this part of the ground in the dynamic with someone who's obviously desperately looking for something in hopes that the third thing will show up in me both of us wiser that's what i learned i'm with you i'm just listening (laughs) yeah yeah and i'm just noticing how uh my experiences are heavy duty they're not you know that's what you learn about that about your gradient also yeah it goes from gangs to you know wars to suicides to it's like a dark in some sense a dark path yeah think that's one of the things you realize after a while this is the nature of the walk that I'm on you know and then accept that
0: the heavy energy I hear but I I I think about Van Morrison a little bit and I think about the mystic and Hafez and Rumi and you have this incredible other side to you that is joyful in a beautiful way and I've seen it a number of times on retreats the vitality of the celebration of life and so I feel like given we're just in the heaviness I'd love to bring in a little bit of the muse and the way the muse works in your life because I know that's there too
1: yeah that's like the antidote to the heaviness it's kind of uh, you mentioned Rumi and Rumi is really a poet about dark and light and I know that you know, people that make cards uh, like to turn him into a poet of the light, but he gets to the light through the darkness all the time. And that's that mystic revelation, that the light is hidden in the dark, that the joy is hidden in the sorrow. And so that's been another side of my life that started with getting introduced to drumming, which happened in a really dark period of my life when I I didn't feel I fit in anywhere. And I wound up being invited into african-american communities and somewhere in the midst of that i found drumming and uh but the drumming was more like ecstatic drumming it wasn't uh you know performance drumming and uh, and that part of that led to being with african uh ritual drummers in which i got cracked wide open uh just by being in the with the drums And then had to figure that one out. Uh, And then going back to Robert Bly, who at at the time when I met him had, or shortly thereafter, had just started translating Rumi into English. I mean, there were other translators, but it was Robert Bly that kind of moved it more into uh, the the popular, the poetic stream. Uh, And then I was present when he told Coleman Barks, you have to translate Rumi. And Coleman became, you know, the, the the stream that became a river of it. And so in that situation, and I got called, you know, in a sense, invited on stage with my little drum and to add to the attempt to, to do uh, spontaneous poetry and Rumi, and then that led to Hafez and all that. And it was a whole other initiation, in a sense, uh, that connected to the experience I had when I was playing with uh, African and African-American musicians, which is the cracking open of the world that leads to joy, as opposed to the cracking open that leads to sorrow and the need for healing. And so, yeah, thank you for bringing that up and, and, and noticing that. It's the other side. If a person's going to deal with wounds and, and and heavy stuff, there has to be an antidote that... Uh, create some kind of balance, even if those balances are extremes, like sorrow and loss and joy and recreation. And so, I've been really fortunate uh, to be able to be in that, you know. Which, and this is interesting too, because I often find myself suggesting to people, "Figure out your lineage." Um, I, remember, I remember being at an event where someone said. It was just a few of us there. Everybody was a teacher of some kind, and someone said, "Why don't we all name our lineages?" And and one was a Buddhist who literally named ancient lineage of Buddhism going way back, and and you know. And then I was sitting there going, "God, I don't have that kind of lineage." <laughs> uh, and then I said, "I think I don't know William Blake." Uh, Absolutely. You know, you know, and 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 so I started to realize, no, I have a lineage. Uh-huh. It's just a little bit unique and a little bit odd, uh-huh. and, and and it hasn't been codified very much and it hasn't been confirmed in expected ways yeah. and, so, uh, and so part of that lineage fortunately is the poetic imagination and, and it's going to ecstasy mm-hmm. that's the place that I, that I find the antidote, the ecstatic. and um, so I've been really lucky there to be able to tell poems and of course I have to do the same thing I did with the Dalai Lama and so on. So I'll tell a Hafez poem and I'll change it while I'm telling it. You know, and then <laughs> someone would come up and said, I know that poem. That wasn't right. And I said, well, I wasn't trying to do it right. I was trying to do it now. <laughs> and so, and I checked with Hafez. He doesn't mind. <laughs> well, Hafez didn't write his poems down, so I don't know who wrote them, but it wasn't Hafez and it wasn't Rumi. And anyway, so, so that's another thing, you know, to find that kind of permission. So I'm joking, but I don't mean to defame or in any way take anything away from what has become, you know, the lexicon or, or the, the written poems. But they were originally said spontaneously, someone else was writing them down. And so, you know, I can't help it. A new line would occur to me and, and, um, and that's when I feel alive. I mean, I'm alive in the presence of brilliant poetry, and then it becomes even more alive, kind of like when I'm talking to the suicidal young person and something comes in, well, that's joyous for me. So, And in my understanding, we have to give ourselves permission if we're not getting it from someone else. We have to give it to ourselves. You know, we're supposed to live the whole package, which usually includes wild extremes, you know, Tragedy and beauty, sorrow and joy. Um, in alchemy, they call it circulatio, moving the entire circumference of the soul, going as high as we can go into the ecstatic realms and balancing that by descents into the deepest emotions. I think that's what we're supposed to be. And, uh, and that, takes, that takes a lot of not knowing, a lot of like, am I allowed to do this? You know you know, I mean you know me. I can't tell a story the same way twice. The the, the the story appears before me as I'm telling it. So I have to include what just appeared, which happens suddenly in the term in, in terms of immediate language. And uh and I think that's an old tradition, that's a lineage. And even though no one in you know, told me that I was in that lineage, I find myself there. And so um uh, as confusing as it might be at times, it also feels legit in a certain way.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you validate that confusion and that. And, and what it what strikes me, and this is something that I wanted to approach you about today in our conversation as well, is the relationship with time, you know, and the suddenness and, and being in the sudden revelation of time, as you describe in this you know with the poetry, and the poetic imagination, and how important that is.
1: Well, you made me think of William Blake, who is part of my lineage. I don't think he minds. I got invited to uh, give a presentation at St. John's Cathedral in Piccadilly in London, uh, which is where uh, William Blake was baptized. And they still have the baptismal font in this old church with the little sign saying, William Blake was baptized here. And so I, I get chills thinking about it. So I get to to stand in the midst of this old church, and 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 tell stories and poems and carry on, in a way that hopefully Blake would approve of. Um, but I also had to say this thing that he said: every day has a moment uh, of um, a moment of you could say it different ways, but a moment of infinity, of a, a moment of the eternal waiting for you. And so we never know when the moment is, when it becomes momentous and we can open to the eternal. And I think that happens to the person um, with the paintbrush, about to paint a picture. And I think it happens to the acupuncturist too. you know. And you're there and you know what the meridian lines are, and yet looking at this particular body and sensing what's going on, maybe you're outside the line a little bit in order to get the needle in the right place and to line all the energies up through that needle. Um, That moment, that momentous moment, is part of, I think, what we learn to not just live with, but live in. And so if one part of things is a lineage that gives us backing, like, I'm not making this up entirely, I mean... Remember what Blake said? Remember what Ruka said? Remember what the old uh, Shaunaquis in Ireland said? You know, Aren't we close to that? Um, but the, then the other moment is to do what they did which would be to be open channels to what's coming in and so interesting to talk about it because as I've gotten older um, the channels keep getting wider and, uh, and I think everybody has to figure their timing out like for me, I call it the muses. And they like to make the deliveries uh, from the other world at four o'clock in the morning. And so I'm typically awakened at four, 4.15 in the morning, and usually with a delivery from the other world. And, and then I still have the choice of accepting, you know, the delivery or not, but uh, more often I try to accept it. Um, and it's profound and it's there as Blake says, every 24 hours. I also have found if I accept that, then other times become that way too. So it becomes uh, not time bound, but actually something that can pop into time at any time. Um, and then I think everybody has to find their own version of that. You know, what lineage mm-hmm. might they be coming from, and what moments might, be, might they be invited to? and what happens in those moments. Healing, the word healing, means to make whole. The healing moment makes everything whole, whether it's literal healing, physical healing, or emotional healing, or poetic healing. I think we're all supposed to be finding those moments. And maybe that's what it does mean. Earlier, I was saying maybe we're supposed to confirm those things in each other, because I think we should. You know, right now, the whole world needs healing at every single level. No is going to do it. No belief system. It's got to be people saying, oh, I think I can provide a little healing here when it comes to how the water runs through the forest or here when it comes to how people deal with um, prolonged depression, whatever. People are called to places. And, uh, you know, if we respond, the moment's open.
0: The sense of time, I think about the crack in time. And I feel that part of your lineage, the Irish lineage in you. And I intimated this a little bit of this, the muse and the way Van Morrison's been part of your parallel life story as I, as I see it. I mean, I'm interested in your relationship to Ireland and the Irish lineage in you, but also just to keep diving into that sense, because it's very Irish in a way to find the crack in the time and in the moment to the other world.
1: No, I, I agree. And so there can be that um, that that kind of lineage which is really historical in one sense, but it's really aiming or pulling towards something ancient. And I think it is an Irish thing, and that's how I became interested in Van Marsen, because... Here's this uneducated guy from Belfast who in his song says, I'm captured in a car seat, not a thing that I can do because he's having visions and revelations. And so I've always had a fondness for that. Or I could also say I felt confirmed in in my own feeling by him doing that. Bob Dylan's in that same vein in a a non-Irish style. Uh, And then, you know, he taps into Woody Guthrie and... And and a lot of the thing and the same thing happens if you go to the blues. You find that people are tapping into these veins. And for me, it happens to be Irish. Both sides of my family are Irish. And uh, when I went to Ireland, it was a revelation. I mean, because, first of all, I got to go to some of the ancient sites, uh, which were mythical places, and and you could feel it. But also, I had experiences with Irish soul you know in a sense you know like how we go walking around in America and you see someone you move your mask down and and uh, and they say how you doing you say fine well that's not what they do in Ireland you know you meet someone and and you say how you doing and they said well You know, I've been better. But then again, I've been worse. I don't know if I ever told you about it. But one time, I like fell into the depths of hell. And it wasn't even my fault. And they tell you this big story. They said, but get back to the question of the day. How am I doing right now? I'm not in the lower regions of hell. I'm in like one of the upper regions of hell. And the whole thing might be fixed by a pint. But then again, I don't know. And, 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 And you're in a conversation. And it's philosophical. And it's mythological. And that was like really confirming for me. Um... And so, I don't know what to make of the whole Irish thing, but I did find that idea of the crack between the worlds. And whether it's a conversation or a presentation or whatever it is, the aim of it is to find the crack between the common world and the mythical world or the mystical world, between the world where everything just keeps going the way it was and the world where healing can happen or imagination becomes fully present. And and that's an inheritance of the soul. And uh, in my case, it just happens to have an Irish style.
0: One of the things that early when I met you that really struck me is not only do you have the capacity to talk about the hard things like, you know, death, violence, chaos, whatever it is that's going on in the culture and, and, and in people's lives, but you... Never, as I saw it, turned a blind eye to the the eternal flashing through into this world or forgetting that cosmic's not the right word, but um, imminent presence. And and so it meant a lot to me to get that confirmation, to have someone who not only came up to me at the retreat and said, hey, I heard what you said last night, and I wanted to say this, when I never had um, someone approach me, in a positive way, in a public space and say, I hear you, I see you. And I like that. And I'm thinking this, but more importantly, as I was a young person struggling with my own destiny of like my anxieties about my destiny and where I was going to see in the world, somebody still holding a flame to remember the eternal in the middle of everything else. That's like the flat world, as you might say. And so I appreciate that. And so I want to I think I want to end there on our, our connection to the eternal, even in the passage of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, in many ways, that's it, right? Modern people are running out of time. No one has enough time. And we mostly think the world is running out of time. And in the end of an era, things move faster and faster. As you get closer to the end, the spiral of things is going faster and faster. And that's what we live through. 24-hour news cycle is now like the 10-minute news cycle. It just moves fast. The changes come fast. Um, And so you can't get more time because we're in this sped-up time. The only way to heal the wound of time is to get more timelessness, get more eternity. And that's what all the artists were always doing, trying to bring the timeless the eternal into vision into language into music that's really what that's about and so to me there's an ever growing need for connection to the timeless connection to the eternal and it's always as close as the moment we're in um and then the other thing i've gotten interested in is um So this is an old teaching idea that knowledge is flooding through the world. That um, human beings are standing on the surface of the earth, but secretly being penetrated by the milk of the Milky Way, for one thing, but also by the flood stream of knowledge. And the knowledge that we need, how do we fix this part of culture? How do we help assist? heal this part of nature, according to the old stories, is flooding into the space we're in, but moving so fast that we don't get it. And so what we need, according to the old stories, are practices and mentors and teachers that slow it down for us so we can get some of the drops of knowledge from the stream that's flooding so quickly. I love that idea. And Right? So then then you say you love a certain kind of music. Well, guess what? It's slowing you down to feel the eternity behind that music. Right? I mean, in mythology, everything didn't begin with the word. It began with the sound. It began with the reverberation and the resonation that continues to this moment. And if you can get into the right musical moment, what you feel is the eternity, not the passing moment. And then that's true in relationships, and that's true in every creative endeavor. And so we're in the chaos now, and we're in the spiraling, rapidly turning of the world towards the end of an era, and we need more than ever, I would say, the capacities to tap into the eternal, because that's what makes us whole. And sure, it disappears later, but it's coming back around again. And so practices, whatever the practices are, healing practices, creative practices, communal practices, that's one way to get it through the practices. And then strangely and interestingly enough for humans, the other way to get it is someone slows it down for us. The teacher, whether it's in the moment or over time, stands in the midst of the flood and slows it down so we can get some of it. And we're always looking for teachers. And it can be an animal or it can be a tree or it can be the desert sunset. I don't know. But it slows it down enough to we go, oh, I get it. Eternity's right here. You know, so that's what I guess. That's the last thought I have. The flood of knowledge.
0: It's beautiful. Love it. I'm good. You good?
1: I'm good. All right.
0: Michael Mead. Good conversation, Jeffrey. Yeah, Michael Mead, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was amazing to walk through such a vast territory. And I really uh, genuinely and deeply appreciate you sharing your story today, your presence in the world, and the opportunities I've had to, to know you over the years. Thank you.
1: Yeah, likewise. I appreciate talking with you and, and how the conversation kind of grows and keeps growing
0: thank you so much for joining us today all music is performed by the incredible and effervescent chase jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform sharing it with your community and friends and by making a modest donation to our patreon page to learn more about this show our guest as well as jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature go to how humans work.us.